Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Galloway and Isbell podcast. My name is Thomas Galloway. So today I'm back once again by myself and going to do a podcast about the books, the top books that I read in May. And uh, this month I had a lot of extra time to read, so I was able to get through a lot of stuff. And I'd like to recommend a number of the books that uh, stood out the most to me this month. But before we get to that, this podcast is brought to you by Morning Bell Coffee Roasters. Morning Bell offers a diverse and unique selection of specialty coffees and have direct personal relationships with their suppliers. You can visit Morning Bell at 111 Main Street in Ames, Iowa, or you can get their coffee at the Wheatsfield Co-op or either Hy-Vee location in Ames. If you do not live in the Ames area, that is not a problem. You can order off their website, morningbellcoffee.com, and shipping is free anywhere in the United States if you order over two pounds of coffee. And whether you visit the actual location, order online, let them know we sent you. Okay, so let's get right into it. The first book, number one, The Four, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. This book is by Scott Galloway, a professor of marketing at NYU. And I didn't pick this book. It's not ranked number one just because he has the same last name and he teaches in my major. But those things did help. Uh, I think that this book itself was incredible. I, it's one of the few books I had read where I didn't really like want to get through it. I just was enjoying uh, it to the point that I didn't. I just like I wanted just to go on for a very long time, uh, but I think I did discover uh, Scott Galloway on Twitter. Probably more like he stood out more likely because he had my last name. So I guess there's a little bit of bias there. But by the time I created these rankings, the top five books that I read this past month, uh, it had nothing to do. I think nothing to do with his name or his profession, but. This book, he is really good. He has a YouTube show as well called Winners and Losers. I think he was doing it every week. They haven't done one. They haven't been doing it on a regular basis for a long time now. But uh, it's a really interesting show if you're interested in going back and seeing some information about business in the last couple years. Um, And this book is really good for business students and anybody who wants to make sure they have a foundation knowledge of the modern business environment. Uh, sometimes as business students, we can get too caught up in the individual aspects of our major and not really understand uh, the business environment as a whole. And I think what a lot of people don't realize who are outside of business, and even people who are business students, is that at the very beginning, we are business students. We're, that's where we are first. And then after that, we uh, are more specific and we get into the area that is our official major but for me out of the 40 41 classes i had at iowa state only seven of them were marketing classes so it's really important to not get so specific in your major that you don't have a general idea what's actually happening in business environment and even though scott galloway is professor of marketing at no point do you feel like this book is entirely down that path. He definitely talks about those aspects and these businesses as a whole, Facebook and Google, have uh, make the re- primary, primarily their revenue off advertising. So it, 
is a very important aspect of it, but he is covering the business environment as a whole and talking about um, these four companies. And there's a number of facts that stood out. So this book, the structure of this book, and one thing I'll do is this podcast goes along is I'll have all these titles listed down in the description of this podcast in case you do not want to listen to this whole thing or you just want to get the names of the books that I'm recommending. Uh, so you can feel free to check that out. But I'd like to go through a few of the facts from this book, and I was going to talk about the structure. He goes through each of these companies, and he refers to them as the four horsemen. So they're by far the four, four most dominant companies right now, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. He goes through each of them, explains what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, typically their strengths because of how dominant they are. And then that's the first half of the book. The second half of the book is him speculating on who could become a fifth horseman or who could replace one of these four companies in the future. He speculates about Netflix, Tesla, uh, Uber. This was a couple years. This book came out in 2017. I should mention that. Uh, and a lot of the information is from 2016. A number of the statistics I'm going to mention uh, have remained fairly consistent since then. But there definitely has been some changes. I mean, there's been a lot of developments with Tesla since then, with Elon Musk. And so things have certainly changed, but it's still, it does not feel outdated in any way. So here's some interesting facts. Starting with Amazon, uh, more people have Amazon Prime than have guns in this country. Uh, it's like 52% have Amazon Prime, 44% have guns. That was in 2016. It, it's changed slightly. I believe Amazon Prime numbers have stayed consistent. And then uh, moving on to Apple, uh, this is really fascinating about Apple. They, in 2016, their smartphone, global smartphone market share was 14.5%. So they didn't sell, they sold a very small percentage of the total phones in the global market, but their profits, their global profit percentage was 79%. So even though they're only selling uh, less than one of every five phones, they are making four of every five dollars in profit that the global smartphone market has available. And that kind of margin is incredibly difficult to reach. Uh, they've done it a lot because of their brand image and the fact that it's a luxury product that is pretty common, but it still manages because a lot of the design is a big part of this. But because of that, it's able to... Uh, even though it's, it's fairly common, at least in a lot of circles in the U.S., it still has this feel of a luxury product. And there's a really good video that Simon Sinek did. It's a TED Talk. It is one of the lower levels of TED Talks when he gives it, so it doesn't really feel like a TED Talk, but he's talking about uh, great mark. It's called How Great Leaders Connect. with. It's something about great leadership, but a lot of it is about marketing, about marketing products, and how subpar mediocre marketing focuses on talking about the positive aspects of each of each product whereas great marketing the company focuses and promotes what they believe whether it's true or not that's what they focus on and eventually if you can get people to believe what you believe as a company they'll buy any product you have to put out there you don't have to justify each product that you put out by its individual merits Instead, you just say, this is who we are, and anything we make is going to be good, and you can buy it. Now, it especially helps when you're a company like Apple, where the devices connect, and it's really easy to put everything together. That's certainly an aspect of it. But 
Apple does, has done a really good job, and he's, Sinek highlights this more in his TED Talk about how Apple's done a really good job of highlighting what they believe. Eventually, people start to just get on board, and they have high brand loyalty. And even though brand loyalty is something that has really fallen off uh, in the in the consumer markets uh, in the last, I don't really know the exact number of years, but certainly in the last 10 years, and a big part of that is consumers are certainly not rational yet, but they're getting closer. And a lot of that is because of consumer reviews. So before you look at a number of different products, you kind of make a judgment based on price and how it maybe looks and maybe a few things you've heard. But now, especially with Amazon, we have access to thousands, if not more, of consumer reviews. And you can can actually quantify uh, the quality of a product in a way that you couldn't before. And this has given people the ability to be rational or more rational. Whether they actually take advantage of that is not always clear. And a lot of times we probably don't because we're people. But it certainly has helped. And so that gets back to the point. We are becoming, brand loyalty is dropping significantly, especially among younger people. And the few products that can maintain brand loyalty, like an Apple, are doing it because they're getting consumers to believe in what the company seems to believe in, whether it does or not, like I said, may not actually matter. Okay, so on to an interesting Facebook fact. They have, Galloway talks about how they have enabled scale and targeting to no longer be mutually exclusive. So the ability to so scale, so you're marketing to a large group of people or a small group of people, but by scale you're trying to do as many people as possible, but you don't have the ability to then target very specific segments. Facebook has enabled that. So, okay, so you can either decide for scale. So scale, we're going to market to everybody. We don't care about what segments we're going to. Obviously, obviously, this is extremely inefficient and not very cost-effective. It's incredibly expensive to do it this way. The other side of that is you can target to very specific segments. and But then you're going to miss out on the scale aspect of it. So you're not going to be able to mass market. What Facebook has enabled is for companies to uh, bring those two together. So Facebook has access to a, tons of consumers, but they they also have so much information on different people that you can segment uh, a, target, a target market fairly easily through people's likes, their uh, basic demographic information. And I wanted to talk a little bit about how you break up a target segment because that's one thing that's misunderstood, I think, to a certain extent. I'll get to that a little bit later. There's a number of different aspects beyond demographics, which we always hear tossed around. But there's a few different other uh, very important parts to that. Uh, but because of this ability to bring scale and targeting together and not have them be their own separate things, you don't have to just pick one. It has made, obviously it creates a lot of privacy concerns, but it also has made marketing really interesting right now. And it has made it um, something that is changing rapidly. Another interesting aspect that he talked about in the book was that the best employees in marketing and advertising now work for Facebook and Google, and they don't traditionally work for the advertising agencies 
um, which have changed significantly since a time like Mad Men. But uh, he had some number in there about how they had lost, the number one marketing agency in the world had lost, I think, a couple thousand employees to Facebook and Google, whereas this marketing agency had only taken a few hundred people from Google and Facebook. Uh, So that basically tells you where people are uh, going for marketing and advertising work. The last interesting aspect of this book that I wanted to talk about was this algorithm that uh, Galloway came up with. He runs, he has a number of different companies in addition to being a a professor. And one of those companies works with marketing analytics. And they have this T algorithm, which outlines eight factors that help firms better allocate their capital and decide what projects to work on, how to market, a number of different things. So I'm going to go through those eight. And I think they're really interesting. And it helps you kind of understand if, as long as you agree with this, I'm sure people who are incredibly knowledgeable might have uh, some uh, different qualms about certain aspects. But I think it's really interesting. So number one, the number one factor, and I don't know if this is in any particular order. I think he just has them uh, laid out. Product differentiation. So pretty straightforward. And just having the ability to separate yourself from uh, other c- companies. Number two, visionary capital. So having the ability to tell to, to tell investors and show investors that you have uh, incredible idea. You have a way to get there. You aren't just okay with the typical uh, business environment. You don't want to be stagnant. You want to go out there and really change things. And he mentions Google's and Facebook's uh, vision and how this has helped them get cheap capital, which is really important. Amazon benefits from from that a lot as well. Uh, Because they have so many different projects they're working on and a lot of people think they're going to work out, that they can have the ability to get cheap capital to do these projects and aren't having to uh, take uh, super high interest rates and all that. Uh, So visionary capital, he talks about Google, uh, their vision, organize the world's information. Uh, Facebook, connect the world. And especially Facebook, now the last few years, we've had some serious problems with them, and people are being quite a bit more skeptical about Facebook. But initially, that's a very powerful uh, message. And you see see that a lot in their commercials they're putting out lately to try to salvage uh, their salvage a little bit of what they've uh, created is to talk about the positive aspects of connecting everybody and things that you couldn't do with any other method besides Facebook. Uh, so that can be powerful still, and initially, like I said, that'd be an incredibly powerful vision. The third factor, global reach. So having the ability to sell in a lot of different markets. Apple's working on this a lot lately. They uh, 65%. I believe this is a revenue chart, and 65% of Apple's revenue uh, came internationally. For Facebook, 54% of their uh, con- their users are international, and Google, 53%. I don't remember exactly what this is referring to, but have over half of something uh, was outside the U.S. Amazon, on the flip side, is the only company of the four below 50 at 32% of sales coming out outside the U.S. Obviously. Uh, that is that's either 2016 or 2017. These numbers obviously could have changed. Amazon, um, that's something they would be working on naturally. So that number could have gone up since then. I didn't double check uh, what the current numbers are for that. The fourth factor, likability. And uh, this 
is obviously important. And it can go beyond just likability. It could be simply having a coherent brand uh, face that the world can see. We did a case study in our last marketing class about Samsung. And about 20 years ago, they if you look up Samsung's uh, history, they have, are an, an incredibly differentiated company. They're in a bunch of different markets, a bunch of different pro- types of products, uh, from washing machines to obviously computers and phones and all over the place. It's crazy. You can find some pretty cool YouTube videos about all the stuff they do. But one, th- one problem they had about 20 years ago is when they were actually trying to get into marketing or at least develop uh, some kind of consistent brand image is they were in so many different markets in so many different countries with so many different products that it was just confusing. Like nobody really knew what they stood for. And they had something like 20 some different logos and different slogans. It was just, it was chaos. And they had uh, at least 20 different advertising agencies. Uh, I'm getting the numbers a little mixed up, but it was at least double digits with the, both the logos and with the advertising agencies. Obviously, having 20 advertising agencies is a problem. So they unified a lot of this. They had they got one primary advertising agency and tried to make their brand much more coherent and tried to develop a uh, vision, a, a narrative, a story about their brand. And I don't know if it's really worked. I mean, certainly not on a scale like Apple, but I think it's it's a necessary thing for companies these days to create some of that hard-to-find brand loyalty is to have a, a story, a narrative about your company. And that's why that's ultimately one of the reasons marketing is so important is because people really do care uh, about what your company stands for. And like I said, in an era of low brand loyalty, that's even more important. You can be one of the few companies who has that uh, because of your story. Okay, on to the fifth factor, vertical integration. It's basically being able to control the consumer experience. Uh, And this is another important aspect. Apple, obviously. Initially, you think about Apple, maybe, I don't remember exactly when they started the Apple Store, but say when they were first developing the iPhone and all that, and you're like, okay, so this is something you buy uh, online, and that's pretty cool. But now, uh, with these stores, you have this incredible experience. It's their stores are like nothing that you see in any other uh, any other store in a mall or wherever you're going. It's incredibly unique. You you know you know what it is right away, and that's very powerful. I'm mean, Apple. That I don't know exactly uh, like what the percentages are as far as a consumer satisfaction with their experience in one of Apple stores. And I'm sure it varies, but it has to be high compared to a lot of different consumer experiences. And one thing that he mentioned in the book a lot is that the brands in retail who are actually having success, like Sephora, uh, he mentioned Home Depot, but Sephora, I go in there, it's 95% women's stuff, but I go in there to get clone samples and they really do have an incredible consumer experience. The employees, first of all, there's a lot of employees. The ratio of employees to consumers is very high. I don't know what it would be exactly, but it's certainly high. And they are very helpful. They're not annoying by any means, but they've really figured out that, okay, so maybe a lot of, the, a lot of these retail companies are like, okay, how do we compete with Amazon? 
all right, well, maybe you're not going to be able to. Maybe you just changed the consumer experience and find a way to differentiate differentiate yourself from online shopping in the only way you can, which is to make that consumer experience as great as possible. And so companies that do that are the ones who are managing to, I don't know how well everybody's going to survive, but they're at least managing to uh, stick around in this Amazon era. On to the sixth factor, AI. Uh, he mentions it specifically in the use of uh, big data to target certain segments. And this is when I was going to talk about how to segment uh, a target market. And we obviously hear about demographics. And that is a very important one of the four ways to uh, segment a target market. Uh, so demographics are age, uh, religion, sex, marital status, uh, family size, all these different factors. But there's a few other really important ones. Another one, geographic location. Obviously, that's a way you could segment a market. Behavioral, and this is not so much the type of behavior that a consumer, the things a consumer is interested in. This is about the type of consuming behavior. So if they are a first-time user, if they are a current user, previous user, all that. It also can talk about how a consumer, so consumers that take advantage of every single sale, take advantage of every single loophole a company has available. They Companies are often not, these are often not profitable consumers. So if you're constantly returning stuff, uh, if, you are, if you're using every single coupon or sale that you can get your hands on, chances are you're not profitable. Best Buy in the last 10 years had a case study that I looked at. It was, we, we did it last semester in one of my classes and it was about in the last 10 years at Best Buy. And there was some number that they gave, and I believe it's 20%, and I need to double check this, but something, a number really high of consumers that are customers that were not profitable for Best Buy. And obviously you can make this up when with less rational customers or less shameless customers, but uh, that's an incredibly high number of consumers that are not profitable. And we did a, a whole section on... Uh, like a lot of phone carriers and different companies actually reject certain consumers. They do it really subtly and it doesn't hit the news a whole lot, but it's a real problem with a lot of consumers who just are not profitable for companies. And so if you wonder like how can companies offer all these sales and all these things and still make money? Well, they can, but only because people aren't taking advantage of them. If every single one of their consumers diligently took advantage of these sales uh, yeah, they won't be profitable. So there's some truth to it when you see like, oh, how can they make money off of that with all these things, with all these sales, all that. Yeah, that's a real thing. Okay, so seventh factor, accelerant. And he talks about this in the aspect of it offers potential employees uh, a promising opportunity to accelerate their career. So you might have a very solid business like IBM, but the best employees, the ones you want, may not see that as a company where they can really take off and do something really awesome in that company or use it as a way to get to another company. And not saying IBM, IBM might be perfectly cool with that, but places like Apple and all these exciting companies are really going to attract the best employees. Number eight, geography. Being in an important city uh, that is close to prestigious 
universities and or it could be just one of the two. I mentioned how Apple, Facebook, Google are close to Stanford and UC Berkeley, which are ranked two and three in engineering. And then Amazon is close to University of Washington, which is apparently ranked number 23. And those are the eight factors that uh, he came up with that would help firms better allocate capital. So that is all I have for this book. Uh, it is, once again, The Four, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google by Scott Galloway, professor of marketing at NYU. Now, like I said, he also has a show on YouTube, and he has a podcast that I actually just discovered last night when I was doing uh, some getting ready for this podcast uh, that is pretty interesting, that I'm going to check out today. Okay, so we're rolling right along 25 minutes. Okay, I'm going to need to pick up the pace a little bit. Fortunately, these next books uh, were not as interesting to me, and I probably will be able to get through them pretty quickly. Okay, so the second book, The Fifth Risk by Michael Lewis. I have two Michael Lewis books on the top five. And I had a Michael Lewis book, at least one, in the last uh, podcast I did about books. As with all Michael Lewis books, very easy read. Uh, he's author of Moneyball, which I'm going to have in a second. Big Short, Blindside. Those are the three most common ones because they probably because they turned into movies, and then a, a ton of other books. And the fifth risk, this book is about. It starts out talking about the uh, parts of Trump's transition team from when he was elected to when he took office. And then it goes into a few of the department agents, the government agencies that, whether we want to admit it or not, have a lot of control, a lot of important parts of uh, our country. Like, it, not necessarily control, but they they are in charge of a lot of really important things. Basically, I'll get into them a little more in a second. Uh, but he starts out talking about how important transition teams are. And how there it requires a ton of effort from the election between the election and the inauguration, as you might imagine, uh, maybe not quite the level of effort that uh, President Trump was expecting or wanting to put into something like this. And the book just starts out by talking about the uh, the incompetence and the dysfunction in Trump's transition team. It, he didn't really even want to put much money into it. He was really upset when they were taking money from. Uh, the campaign or from their funds to work on the transition team. And, I mean, there's the kind of argument, and this is a fair one, that it wasn't so much that they're completely incompetent, it's that they just didn't care about any of the government agencies. And, I mean, yeah, fine. Like, depending on your politics, you can see that as, as rational. Uh, the book then goes into a few of the most important agencies and why we actually need them, why the names of them are misleading, but what they do is actually incredibly important. So one of those agencies was the Department of Energy, which is ironically run by Rick Perry now, who in 2011, when he's running for president, said that he that was going to be one of the agencies he was going to get rid of. Uh, then he forgot what that was in the, during the debate and couldn't remember it. And it's a, a pretty incredible YouTube clip and then a pretty incredible SNL skit based on it. Um, later he did admit that he didn't really know what the agency did which uh, now he's running it so that's cool uh, 
about half the agency's budget in 2016 went to maintaining the nuclear arsenal and protecting Americans from nuclear threats. And that's the Department of Energy, which isn't necessarily what you think of. And then you're like, okay, nuclear energy, okay, okay, I guess so. But you're thinking more, and this is what most the, the rest of the other half of their budget primarily goes to, is developing uh, sustainable energy options. But as far as nuclear threats, uh, then it goes into, so that's half the budget for nuclear threats. Honestly, I this is 2016 numbers. That could have changed uh, with the Trumps uh, when Trump took over. I don't really know how they went about that. Uh, it probably didn't go up. Probably none of the budgets went up. I don't remember exactly what his first budget proposal was. But uh, this book then goes into talking about the number of close calls we've had, uh, not so much in regard to uh, not re in regard to ta attacks, but a number of close calls that could have been significantly worse uh, if not for the efforts and the budget of the Department of Energy. And this was definitely the most impactful part of the book. Uh, it was especially a topic like nuclear, uh, nuclear threats and nuclear accidents. And I tend not to overreact about things like this, like, oh, this doomsday, like somebody's going to mess something up. Because generally, I assume that the people who are in control are competent enough to not let terrible things happen. That is not really necessarily how I feel have felt the last two years. I think I'll go back to feeling that way at some point. I don't really care who's in, I don't really, I don't, it's not that I don't care, but as far as things like this, whoever the president is, whatever party is, it's like, okay, usually this person's very competent. They care enough to put competent people in place and you don't have to really worry about something like this. I haven't felt the last couple of years. And, you know, like I said, I'm not really, there's a lot of people who overreact about stuff. I don't really think I fall into that category. Maybe some people th still think that's the case. You know, that's fine. Uh, but, um, you know, I mean, th this book really did highlight some stuff that maybe, that made me uh, a little bit concerned <laughs> about the uh, situation we're in. Uh, it's still really ironic that Rick Perry runs his agency. Uh, that is pretty crazy to me. Okay, so the other agency, one of the other ones he talks about was the Department of Commerce, which is a very misleading name, and that's part of the problem with all of these. Is the names tend to be very tend to be very confusing. The Department of Commerce spends over half their budget. Uh, it goes to NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and work on weather. Uh, so that I mean, when you think about commerce, you think about you know injecting money into different businesses where it is best used, and that's certainly some of the stuff they do. But with when over half your budget goes to uh, the weather service, uh, that is that's confusing. And the Trump transition team obviously didn't realize exactly what it did, and they uh, they put people in place who just weren't equipped to handle this. Um, Honestly, I think that's all I have for that book. I didn't take too long. Flew through that one pretty well. Uh, but it is, it's definitely sobering in a way that it, w there's a lot of articles out, out there about different things and people trying to get people to freak out about different presidents, especially the current president. But Michael Lewis is a really reputable author. He's written a ton of books. You don't get this strong uh, partisan vibe from him. You don't really feel like he's on one side or the other. Uh, 
And you're just an incredibly rational guy who's writing a book making us aware of how they really don't care about anything. And they certainly didn't at the beginning. Maybe they're realizing it now as it gets becomes a little more real. Uh, certain situations and the work that's actually involved to uh, run an administration. But uh, it's it's really it's a really interesting book, and I would definitely recommend checking it out. It's only just over 200 pages in a really quick read. Uh, you can fly through it. Uh, it's interesting stuff. So that was The Fifth Risk by Michael Lewis. The third book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Persig. I mentioned some quotes from this book on previous podcasts that you might have heard, including The High Country of the Mind uh, in like episode maybe 19 or 18, something like that. Uh, this book is about, and it's autobiographical. This guy rides across the, rides from Minnesota to San Francisco, I believe, on his motorcycle with his 10-year-old kid. And he writes about some of the specifics of the trip uh, while also discussing uh, different philosophical topics that he's thinking about as they're writing. He has different topics that he like uh, he approaches. He pl- like plans it out to a certain extent, what he's going to consider and in a uh, true uh, philosopher um, practice. So with the title, you can imagine that it's a lot of stuff about just enjoying the journey and appreciating it. Uh, at one point, they stop riding and they climb a mountain. I don't know how big the mountain is, 10-year-olds with him. But his quote from that is that it's the sides of the mountain which sustain life, not the top. Here's where things grow. And it's a good way of putting it's about the journey, not the destination. Once you get to the top, there's really nothing there. Just come on down. But the journey going up there. Uh, is really powerful and I mean that's a lesson that is always good for me to remember and always good to be reminded of the next thing uh, he talks about motorcycle maintenance a lot obviously in the book maybe not quite as much as you think with the title but uh, he's talking about how it forces you to stay in the moment to avoid mistakes uh, similar to some other most other things he's talking about um, and he also talked about how humbling the work is and that you really can't BS your way uh, through it like you can in certain areas of life. He was talking about how if someone who at least had some knowledge about, mo- about a motorcycle was watching you work, they would realize really quickly if you didn't know what you were doing. Whereas if you're watching somebody in, in a lot of other jobs, they could really fool you for a long time if they didn't know what they were doing. Um, and so I thought that was really cool. I like things like that in life where uh, anybody who goes through it or finishes it or can do it is it's really real. There's no posing going on. And uh, so that part was pretty cool to me. And then the thing we talked about before on the other podcast, The High Country of the Mind, uh, and he talked about this about a third of the way through the book. And I really like that whole quote, so I'm just going to read it. The High Country of the Mind. Few people travel here. There's no real profit to be made from wandering through it. Yet like this high country, the material world all around us, as they're driving through Montana, it has its own austere beauty that to some people make the hardships of traveling through it worthwhile. In the high country of the mind, one has to become adjusted to the thinner air of uncertainty and to the enormous magnitude of questions asked 
and to the answers proposed to these questions. I think the part I like the most is the thinner air of uncertainty and how when you do go through difficult things you go and you or you consider really difficult topics is that there's a lot of uncertainty that comes along with that. And a lot of people are not comfortable with that uncertainty and it leads them to come to conclusions about things that whether they're true or not or whether they're rational or not answer questions that they have about things. And it allows them to live their life with some certainty about the future. And I think a lot of it really goes, comes down to being comfortable with uncertainty. Whether, whether you are or whether you're not, that's going to determine whether you create or subscribe to these notions that make you feel confident about something that's going to happen or not happen. And so one thing... If you are considering yourself to be a rational person, then you're going to have to face there's a level of uncertainty about stuff. And if you don't want to face that uncertainty, there's a good chance you'll convince yourself of something else to answer that and to solve that. But once, if you're comfortable with uncertainty, then everything's, first of all, everything's more exciting. And you put yourself in situations where uh, you're cool with the outcome uh, and you, and you just—I I just really like the idea of not having to abandon rationality to solve your uncertainty and to be more comfortable with everything. Okay, on to the next book, *Moneyball* by Michael Lewis. This is a, turned into a—it's a baseball book, a book about baseball turned into a movie in 2011, I believe, with Brad Pitt. Great movie, good chance a lot of people saw it, especially if you're interested in sports. And the book is really good. I wouldn't say, there's certainly a couple differences, and I wouldn't say it adds a ton to the movie, but it was still really interesting. I'm glad I went read it. I, I may or may not have read it a long time ago because I was interested in any kind of sports book, and I may have come across this one at one point. But everything seemed new, so I probably didn't. Um... And it's essentially about the use of statistics to evaluate individual players rather than just using the eye test. And a lot of it centers around Billy Bean, the general manager of the Oakland A's, played by Brad Pitt. And he was projected as an incredible prospect when he was in high school. He was drafted number one overall. And a lot of it was based on he passed the eye test. He was tall. Uh, he had a good swing. He looked like he was going to be a great baseball player. And if scouts had actually used this statistical approach, they would have realized he wasn't as good as he looked. And in a way, it was a good and a bad thing for him. First of all, I mean, it was good because he got drafted high, presumably would have made more money because of that than if he had gotten drafted where he should have gotten drafted. On the flip side, uh, he was this promising prospect who was basically a bust. And he was only in the league for like five years. And then he immediately got into the front office of the Oakland A's to start doing what he ended up doing as the general manager. Uh, not in the same exact way, but that's what he got in the next job he got into. Uh, so he really bought into this because he realized that you can misvalue a player like the way he was misvalued. And so he really bought into this statistic model. Uh, it's a great book. 
really interesting stuff. It also made me consider a little more about the whole argument of stats and sports and analytics and sports, which obviously, obviously have come a long way in the last 20 years or so. And you hear a lot of people talk about the, the money ball phrase or a term is tossed around all the time with different things, tweaked a little bit here and there. And I think it's a really interesting argument. Obviously, you have it's kind of like politics. Like I think, I mean, th- there's a large percentage of people on both sides who are completely nuts. And I think the people in the are the people who are the most nuts are the people who don't believe that statistics have any place. But then I also can't stand the people who think that only thing that matters are statistics, and they use the wrong statistics which is a really common problem in basically every single argument about anything. But using the incorrect metrics to evaluate people and basing it all on... So a good example is in basketball, people always talking about individual matchups and comparing players. And that makes it clear you've never watched a basketball game because what you'll understand the first first thing you watch is everybody tries to get the switch onto the worst defender. That's all the Cavaliers did in 2016 in the finals is they got they did screens with Steph's guy and got Steph on LeBron or Kyrie and did whatever they wanted to and that was their goal every single possession so the individual matchup then is meaningless and so to go to to go through and like compare the statistics of every single matchup and say oh this team's going to win because these matched are the best is obviously ineffective now I know that's the people at the high levels who are using these on teams are probably smart enough to see past that. But I have anecdotal experience talking with people about sports who are into statistics. I've, I worked, I've worked at a, a company that does a lot of stat work and business analytics. So a lot of people that work there are interested in sports analytics. And this is a really common thing that people hear people talk about, the analytics of sports. And they see anybody who doesn't consider every single statistic to be valuable as someone who's behind the curve is one of these old people who doesn't uh, appreciate uh, the use of analytics in sports. And I get to that to a certain extent. But at the same time, I mean, you, you have to understand what you're, the statistics you're using, are they actually relevant? And, I mean, that's a huge problem too. So, like I said, it's an interesting debate. It's a lot like politics. Um, and there's a very smart place somewhere in the middle that I think would be best if people found it. Okay, and the last book I have, and this is going to take about 30 seconds, is Into the Wild by John Krakauer. I think that's how I pronounce his last name. Uh, it's about the guy who got lost um, when he was 22 as he was exploring the Alaskan frontier, died in the bus. It was, it was a good book. Um, yeah, it was fine. It was quick and easy to read. It was interesting enough. Uh, I I don't know. I, th- I think, I mean, I think books like that, stories like that are interesting to me. But I don't. I didn't quite feel like enraptured as I felt like I should have been based on the way everybody talked about it. But you know, it's still a good book. Uh, so anyway, it's in the top five because I read six books this month. So like, you know, uh, it's not that hard to make the top five within a month. So that's why it's here. But I, I mean, honestly, am I recommending it? It's quick, easy to read. A lot of people have read it. You can then watch the movie with the knowledge of the book. Um, yeah, that's basically all I got. All right.
44 minutes, pretty solid stuff. Uh, okay, so if you found this one interesting, and if you liked if you like these podcasts where I recommend books and talk about about them a little bit, uh, you know, I'll be glad to do more if people like it. Uh, I don't want recommendations about it, how to do it better, but uh, I definitely would like to uh, do more of these. And I will either way, but if you if you like it, you know, share with other people. Uh, if you read some of the books that uh, I mentioned here and you really like it, I'll be really glad to hear about it and we can talk about them. Uh, yeah, that's all I got. All right, everyone, have a great day.